celebratory times at Redeemer Life. Um, we should be praying for some people that are sick. I know that there are people who are not able to come because they have um, colds and related stuff with viruses going around. So let's pray for those that are struggling with that. Um, um, and I myself have been fighting this cold. I have no idea why it doesn't disappear. But, you know, when you have grandkids, then they, they are very um, uh, huggable and they pass on their gifts to you. So that's how we do it. Um, uh, there is, uh, of course, birthdays also. So Tanya's birthday today, Tanya and Martin. Well, let's, let's give them a hand. That's good, that's good, Martin. Martin and Tanya are a year younger. After a certain age, you become younger. You don't get older. Um, so, uh, and we don't ask for age. Um, we say, um, um, happy birthday, that's all. <laughs> um, and then there is uh, other happy things going on. So, um, you know, uh, I see Carson. He's looking rather sad and sitting they're alone by himself, and no one is sitting beside him, but that will not be the case next week. So Carson and Kathy are um, getting married on Saturday, the 16th of November. Um, and, and a lot of people will be going there. I, I hear that there is a big driving party that's going in vans that are trying to keep Richard awake. I don't know where's Richard. Richard. Oh, there. So they, they are there. Their job is to keep Richard awake because he'll be driving the, the van. Is that the case? A car. It's a car. So um, let's pray for you know safety, for uh, a whole lot of things because there's plans that are gone on that have gone on and uh, pray that everything will fall together well and that'll be a God honoring event. Um, and. Um, uh, and let's let's pray for that. Let's let's pray for uh, these couple of things. Uh, perhaps we should do that right now. May we? <clears throat> our Lord, our God, as we uh, continue to worship you, we want to thank you for occasions of joyfulness. We want to thank you for this wedding celebration that's coming up. And as uh, as Carson and Kathy um, uh, pronounce their vows in in your sight and in the sight of the community that they love. Uh, pray that this would be indeed a God-honoring event. Pray that everything will go well. Pray that uh, all that are driving and traveling and uh, for uh, uh, the details of the wedding ceremony, the cake and everything, Lord, we pray for your hand of protection and care and that this would indeed be a beautiful time. So bless uh, Carson and Kathy as they become one in you. And Lord, we pray for those that are struggling with um, health issues. Pray for uh, your healing touch on them. And, and then, Lord, we, we want to thank you for birthdays. We want to thank you for Tanya. We want to thank you for Martin and, and for others who are celebrating different aspects of their lives birthdays, wedding anniversaries, and uh, um, just uh, the joyfulness of being together. So bless each one, and bless our time together as we seek to um, 
as we seek to reflect on your word, to reflect on what is our calling. Um, what is our calling as individuals? What is our calling as a, a church, as Redeemer Life Church? Lord, we look to you so that we would be and do your calling in our lives as individuals and as a community. So bless us with your presence, O oh Lord, we pray. Amen. 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 You know, we have so many different languages in our, uh, in our church, and I, I thought it would be a good thing for us to make it possible for us to pray in those languages from time to time and to, and to perhaps um, it'll, it'll, it'll sharpen your Malayalam, Joe, I'm thinking about you. <laughs> Uh, and and, and uh, to, to read scriptures in different languages. So hey, I've requested Olga, whose Russian is amazing, uh, to, uh, to read a scripture passage for us. We will follow along with her in the first few verses in Luke chapter 4, um, Beginning at verse 14 till verse 21 will be read while we follow it in English. And then we will join her uh, in English. She will continue to read in this amazing language of Tolstoy and all those people in, in Russian. And, uh, and then we'll join her in verse 22. So would you arise, please? Would you arise as, as, um, as Olga reads to us? In, in Russian, and then we will join at verse 22. И пришел в Назарет, где были где был воспитан, и вошел по обыкновению своему в день субботний в синагогу, и встал читать. Ему подали книгу пророка Исаи, и он, раскрыв книгу, нашел место, где было написано: Дух Господень на мне, ибо Он помазал меня благовествовать нищим. И послал меня исцелить сокрушенных сердцем, проповедовать пленным освобождение, слепым прозрение, отпустить измученных на свободу, проповедовать лето Господне благоприятное. И закрыв книгу, и отдал служителю сел, и глаза всех на синагоге были устремлены на него. И он начал говорить им, «Ныне исполнилось Писание сие, слышанное вами». И все засвидетельствовали ему это и дивились словами благодати, исходившим из уст его, и говорили, не Иосиф ли это сын? Okay, so verse 20, sorry. 21 now? 21, so 21, and then at 22 we will join her. Okay, now it's 22. 22? Mm -hmm. Are we um, people at the back? You don't have verse 22. Well, we should have our Bibles with us. May we open up to verse 22, verse 22, and, and join in English, or oh, whatever language you want to read it in. Um, verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me 
do here in your hometown what has heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brew of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Please be seated. That was so good. Thank you. Thank you for um, you know, reading in Russian. I mean, there's so much literature that is written in the Russian language. Um, uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and all those people, amazing thinkers, uh, there are novels that is just one train journey. I mean, it's 800 pages of one train journey. Isn't that amazing? You know, that one can write something like that. Um, we, we have been going through this series on, um, on, um, on running, on running, looking at Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, of our faith, the starter and the finisher of this long journey. And in, in some senses, we are continuing that, um, uh, that series. Um, I do want us to now go into, as we think about Thanksgiving, as we think into the season of Advent, I want to think in terms of what is our um, purpose as individuals. Jesus came... He was born in the world. He was born with a purpose. He was born with uh, an anointing. He was born with a voce, the Hebrew, the, 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 the Latin word from which we get the word vocation is the word voce, which means the voice, hearing the voice. He, he knew the voice of his Abba. He knew the voice of the Holy Spirit, and that's what drove his life. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who, who don't hear that voice, who just flounder around from one thing to the next, get up in the morning, and, and we do our stuff, and, and, and that's it. And, um, but but where, where are we heading? Are we heading towards a goal? So in some senses, we, it is a run, because in a run, when you start a marathon, you know that you want to finish the marathon. It's the same thing in life. There's five big questions that all calling-driven people ask of themselves. Five big questions. And I think those should be the questions that all calling-driven churches would also ask of themselves. And uh, you probably have those on the slide there. The five big questions are, the first one is to discover to discover, who am I? You start with, why was I born? Who am I? What is 
What is, what is essentially me? What has God made me to be? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Why has God made me? Why was I woven together in my mother's womb? Those are important questions because each of us have a purpose. God has enabled our mothers to give birth to us for a purpose in life. What is that purpose? What's the purpose of, of Redeemer life? Why was it born? That's why we need to be asking questions of those people that were there in the initial stages of the birthing of Redeemer life. Discovery of the calling of our lives as individuals, discovery of the calling of Redeemer life as a community. The second question, of course, is, uh, who is God in, in this? What's the centrality, centrality of divinity? Who is God? Do we hear the voice of God? The continued, continuingly, perhaps constant, perhaps changing voice of God as we seek new directions in our life. Um, the, the, the mission of organization flounders when they lose sight of these two things. Who am I? And what is God's calling? God, what's God's voce in my life? The third question, of course, is to listen to the complex difficulties of human society. What are the problems? If we don't go into Libertyville, into Vernon Hills, into Waukegan, into Mandalayan, and actually converse with people and find out what are the problems, then we don't have solutions. We need to find out what are the complex difficulties of human society around us. The fourth question is the question of offering complex deliverance and salvation message. What are those issues? Seek those issues, but then, then go before God as a community. And that's what the small groups, the life groups are all about, where we pray about what are the complex difficulties, what are the solutions that we are offering. If our life groups are only meant for, oh, let's have this nice fellowship together, that's defeating the purpose. The purpose of life groups is to go out and to meet the complex challenges that society is facing around us. And then, of course, the fifth question is the question of destiny. The question of where do we want to head in the next year, in the next two years, in the next five years, in the next ten years? And then what is the destiny that we offer to the people, the message of hope of the gospel? So those are the five basic questions that we will be seeking to, to address in, these, uh, in this oncoming series. Uh, discovery, divinity, where is God? Complex difficulties, um, what is the word of deliverance? And what is destiny? Um, as, we, as, we, as we go into the series, and the first one that we want to look at is, is the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus, where does he begin? So that's where we began in, in Luke chapter 4, um, where uh, Jesus is, is now 30 years old. Jesus is 30 years old. Uh, Jesus has 
being reared in, in Nazareth. And of course, we, we don't know what all happened in Nazareth. We, we don't know what happened when, when he was a little child. There are apocryphal stories that have come, come to us from around the 4th century AD, which is like 400 years after the time of Jesus. But does that, does that accurately dis- display what Jesus did during his, his childhood days? There's also stories in, in the Islamic hadiths and in the Quran, but does that come to us from during the time of Jesus? It doesn't. So we don't know. We don't know what was the life of Jesus like as when he was a kid. And, 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 and in, in Mary's of the Bible, I address some of that, and I say, well, Mary would have gone through a lot, just reading historical details from, from that period of time. What did the Sadducees do? What did the Roman soldiers do? Why was his mother's name Mary? Because it was bitter. And why were so many girls called Marys? Because they went through horrible times in their lives. And so parents called them Mary. Their life was suffering. And so we, we do read about those things in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in material of that sort. Jesus was reared, surrounded by things happening around him. And he would have pondered on those things. These are the complex difficulties. These are the complex changes and so when we, when we fast forward to Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4, we come to a time when Jesus is about 30 years old. Before that, it does talk about his bar mitzvah, when he's taken into the temple. And of course, Jesus is, is pondering over his text, his bar mitzvah text, which I believe is Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 61. That is his bar mitzvah text, and that is the text that governs his life. That's what the bar mitzvah text was supposed to be doing. And I'm of the opinion that Jesus was born during that time, and reading the Dead Sea Scrolls, I have discovered that that text was read during that time, during the time of Passover. So, of course... Then the question arises, when was Jesus born? I think Jesus was born during the time of Passover. That's what the early church fathers say. Where do we get December 25th from? We get it from this emperor called Constantine, who took all the Roman festivals and just converted them into Christian festivals. Well, it doesn't become a Christian festival because just because it was the winter solstice goddess that was worshipped during that time, and you say, now it's going to be Christmas. In all probability, according to the early church fathers, Jesus was born during the time of Passover. What was the text that was read during that time? It was Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus would have gone into the temple when he was 12 years old, and he's talking about the mission of his life. What is the mission of my life? And it goes on to say, as he reads when he is 30 years old, that same text, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the mission text of Jesus. And I think we flounder around in life because we don't have a mission text for our lives. 
We should spend time in prayer and in fasting. And, and as you go into your wedding ceremony, Carson, each couple should talk about what is the mission text of our wedding, of our marriage. Why do marriages flounder? Because we don't have a mission text. Why do churches flounder? Because we don't have a mission text. We have to focus on that. This is what God wants me to be. And Jesus was always reflecting on that. Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, notice that Jesus does not go and talk about this somewhere in Timbuktu. Where does he go? He goes back to his home where he has seen horrible things happen to poor people, to women, to girls. Jesus goes to Nazareth, and that's where we begin. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Jesus returned to Nazareth. Jesus returned to Galilee. Well, why is that important? That's important because whenever you and I want to witness, we should first begin with our home. It's our parents who know who we are. It's our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, people who have seen us grow up, people who have seen us when we were this much, when we were this much, when we were this much, and we become this big, you know, all-time big leader. Well, if we are not able to go and call a spade a spade in our home, then our witness will be of no value. We have to first begin at home. Parents have to first begin at home. Kids have to first begin at home. If we are not able to witness at home, our witness is of no worth. I mean, having said this, you know, there is um, this very sad um, uh, story that has been um, talked about, much talked about in more recent times, but last week it was a pastor in, in, in Chicago um, from Armitage Baptist Church. I don't know if you, you read that story in, in, in Chicago Tribune and in Chicago Sun-Times and a lot of other places where um, a, a pastor whom I... Um, look up to quite a lot. I mean, I've had students from the church in my classes, and I know that many, many people have been impacted, but as it turns out, the story has come out that when he was younger, he sexually abused uh, a, a little girl. Now, he was a lot younger. Now, he's had 45 years of ministry, and now he has to come out into the public and talk about what happened those many, many years ago. That's a very hard thing, isn't it? And everyone is having to deal with this. 
people in the family are having to deal with it, and I'm, I'm in touch with some of the young people who have been impacted. Uh, others have been able to deal, have had to deal with it as well. So where does ministry begin? Ministry begins at home. Where does healing happen? Healing happens at home. And it's so important for us to go back home and set things right before we can be a witness and before we can make changes in society around us. So Jesus returns back to Nazareth. It says in verse 16, where he was brought up, where he was reared. And then it goes on to say that on the Sabbath day, verse 16, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. That's the second point that I want to underline there. A calling-driven life finds the calling in the regularity of life. It just doesn't happen out of the blue. Unless we make it a habit to be a regular witness, unless we make it a habit to have this regularity in our prayer life, in our life of reading the Word of God, in our life of being a witness to other people, it, it, it won't happen otherwise. We have to do it in the regularity of life. And that as he goes there, it says here, he stands up to read, verse seven, uh, end of verse 16, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Why? Because that was his bar mitzvah text. And he opens up to Isaiah chapter 61. You know, it takes a long time. And it's not like these pages. It's easier for us to go and say, I have students who have never seen a Bible in their whole life. And so I have to say, well, we are, we are on page 1,301 or something like that because, you know, they've never seen a Bible in their whole life. It's easy for us to say that. In those times, you've got to really unroll the scroll and roll up the scroll. It takes a long time. There are no verse divisions. There's no paragraph divisions. There is no chapter divisions. You just have to know where it is. And Jesus found the place which was his bar mitzvah text because his life was ruled by the Word of God. A calling-driven life is a life that finds the calling in the Word. It's not only starting with the Word, but every whoop and wharf of the life of a calling-driven person is driven by the Word, is underlined by the Word. It should be something that, that inculcates us. One of the things that I, I wrote to this about, 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 the, uh, with, the, about the, with the leaders of, of, of Redeemer Life, when I was in, um, when I was in, in India and I initially became uh, a believer during my high school days, what, what, the group of people that I came into contact with were called the navigators. And I'm thankful for that. The navigators are people who focus on learning of Scripture. There were these note cards. In, and it was in uh, the New International Version, which is why I like the New International Version, 19... 
84 translation. Actually, actually it was before that period of time as well. And so I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm, I'm learning it up. And, and believe me, those are the things that comes to my mind even now. When I was pastoring a church in Naperville, one of the things that we did was the young people, these are middle schoolers and high schoolers, would go in for Bible quizzing competition. And they would learn off huge chunks of material. And they would have competition with each other. This was really healthy. But those are kids that I'm still in touch with. Do you know what? They are leaders in the churches. They're serving God in Pakistan and in India and in Iraq. Why? Because the word of God was inculcated into their mind. And that's what Jesus did. The word of God was central to, to what he was doing. But from the time he was a little child to the time he was 12 years old, the scriptures were inculcated in their mind. I think we should be put to shame because when you go into Pakistan, there are eight-year-old kids who can recite the whole Quran. Do you know that? Eight-year-old kids, 10-year-old kids, they can recite the whole Quran. Where are we? Do we have the Word of God central to our mind or are we so caught up in our you know, everyday walks of life that we, we, we pay second attention or third attention or, or whatever else it may be. Jesus was driven by the Word of God. And he was driven by the Word of God. He was always controlled by the Spirit of God. When it becomes a part of our life, then the Spirit of God speaks to us. The Spirit of God takes control of our life. Um, because it's all about the Spirit of God as He takes the Word of God and it, it becomes etched in our inner being. We're driven to do things for God. We're driven to be things for God. It's the Spirit of God that caused the whole universe to come into being. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the Spirit of God that caused people to know how to build the temple. It's so powerful. The Spirit of God came upon Bezalel. The Spirit of God came upon Samuel. The Spirit of God came upon Isaiah. The Spirit of God came upon all these people. It is by the Spirit of God that things happen. Why? The Spirit of God takes the Word of God that's etched in our mind and we get on to a different level. Why are there Christians who are just floundering around and churches that are just floundering around? Because we are not led by the same Spirit of God. Paul says our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual powers. And the only way in which we can counter spiritual powers and forces in the world is to be so full of the Word of God and let the Spirit of God take control of our lives as individuals and as a church. And the next thing that happens is a calling-driven life and a calling-driven church is always a church that's anointed by God. We take this anointing oil and pour it upon the priest as they had to in Exodus chapter 28. Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. 
And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, you, the church, should be an anointed church. The word Christos means the anointed one. And Chrysas means the people who are anointed. So we become like Christ's followers and Christ's ambassadors as messianic people that go into the world. It is only an anointed church and an anointed life that will make a difference in society. To do what? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I am running out of time. I hope not. But let, let, me, let me kind of... Um, Lay this out before you. I think we have caught, the modern church is caught in a modern philosophical lie. And here's where I say this. There are philosophers like Rene Descartes who said, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. It's the thinking person that is important. Then there were philosophers like Immanuel Kant who said there is a difference between the rational person, the thinking person, and the irrational person. Fast forward to America. We have come to this understanding that there ought to be a distinction between the church and the state. State is the realm of the thinking person, the politician, the economist, the sociologist, the, the, the legal thinker, and so on and so forth. The, 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 the church is the realm of those people who don't think. It's the people who sing these nice songs, and they shout around like this, raise their hands, and they sing these songs. That's the realm of the church. And what we say is that there is a distinct distinction between the church and the state. I think that's a lie. Fast forward to the realm of the message of the church. Then we say that the salvation message is only for the soul. It's only for your heart. That is a lie. Jesus' message falls for the mind, for the soul, for the spirit, for the physical being, for the will, for everything. The, the message of the gospel is all of these things. Think about it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. They need the message of the gospel to, to proclaim release to the captives. The prisoners need the gospel. The recovery of the sight to the blind. They need the gospel physically blind, emotionally blind, spiritually blind in every way to let the oppressed go free. All of those realms. Whereas we say, no, the salvation message is only for your soul and only for your heart. That is a modern lie. Jesus' gospel is for everything. When we proclaim the lordship of Christ on our life, it has to impact Every area of our life, our spirit, 
our mind, our heart, our physical being, our willfulness. The problem with today's Christianity is that we are giving a very watered-down Christianity. Jesus went and impacted all of life. And not just for one day, not just when Gina or, or Emily say, oh, let's go once a year to those prisoners. No! It should be a part of our everyday being. We should be preaching the gospel and being the gospel in every area of our life. That's what Jesus did. And as he did this, it says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. And everyone knew that this was different. I mean, I've, we've heard people read the, the, the scriptures in Hebrew, but this was different. So they're all looking at him. The eyes of everyone was fastened on him because they knew that this was different. And then he looks at them and he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they're looking and saying, What? You're saying you're the Messiah? We've all along believed, that's what our leaders have told us, that this scripture refers to the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, yes. That surety is so important for a calling-driven life and a calling-driven church where we are sure that God fulfills His word. We trust in God's word so much that we know that he will cause it to come into fulfillment. Our problem is that we read the Bible and we say, oh, it's the Bible, it's for those olden days time. Oh, yes, Samuel did that. Oh, yes, Jesus did that. But we don't do this. God's fulfillment happens. And a calling-driven church and a calling-driven life makes sure that God's Fulfillment happens in all areas of life. And look at the response of the people. It says in verse 22, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So the gospel does impact when it is authentic, when people see that these are people who are genuine and when the people see that these are people who are filled with the Spirit of God, they really believe that God's Word takes effect and is, is fulfilled in, in people's lives. But the question, of course, is, will everyone believe? And the answer is no. You know, there'll definitely be those people who say, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, this is this kid. We saw him with his snot running down his nose. We, 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 we saw him grow up. This is Joseph's kid. And, and there were a group of people who were saying, we don't even know he's, if he's Joseph's kid. So yes, there will be naysayers. There will be naysayers. 
But there will be people who will listen to the authenticity and the truthfulness of the gospel. And so Jesus goes on to say, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, which is probably true even now, isn't it? Because people will have their doubts. They know who we are. They know our weaknesses. So Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. It was a Gentile who saw God's prophetic word and miracles happen in her life. And then he goes on to say, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only a pagan from Syria by the name of Naaman. And then, of course, the people were furious. I want to show you a couple of pictures of this uh, site. I, I, went, I went to, drove to Nazareth, and I was actually lost. And then I went to, to this place where, um, according to tradition, Jesus was reared, and there is a church everywhere. There is a church uh, that is, uh, I don't know if you have it. Do you have it? Probably not. Oh, there it is. I can't see it there. Thank you. <laughs> so this is the church, and um, I spent some time there in, in prayer. Um, and then, as you look behind you, so if the church is out there, somewhere around here, at the back there, there's a cliff. And I want, to sh I want you to see the image of that cliff. I don't know if you have it. Oh, that's not there. That was the part I wanted you to see. It's a huge drop. There's a cliff. That's the end of Nazareth. And they took Jesus there and wanted to push him down. Because yes, they heard his message. Yes, they saw him as being authentic. But they did not want to change their lives. It's, people don't reject Christ because they don't realize that he is authentic. People reject Christ because they know that the moment they accept the gospel, they have to make changes in their lives. And they don't want that to happen. But the authentic church and the authentic life always says, Jesus, change me that I may make a difference, not in just one area of life, but all of life. That is a purpose and a calling-driven life and a purpose and calling-driven church.